Cultured Hollywood for smart people for Thursday, December 3rd, 2020. I am Nico and I am your host. And we're talking movies, television, music, and so much more in a way that smart people can enjoy them. Happy Thursday. How you doing over there? Oh! I don't know why I'm doing my Andrew Dice Clay impression at the beginning of the program. (laughs) But it is a very somber episode. It's a somber occasion that we all come together and talk about the business of show. It's a bad day for everyone that likes this sort of thing. And I regret to inform you of this, but I must inform you of this nonetheless, that I was right. And if you did not detect any joy or jubilation in my voice, you would be correct. There is none. It's a sad occasion. It's a regretful, I told you so, but it is an I told you so nonetheless. I would do anything to go back in time and take back this I told you so, to take back this bold prediction. I would do anything. I would give up every future correct decision, including every bet I place in Las Vegas on the correct NFL team to make this I told you so not be true. But nay, COVID-19 and corporate America has made the decision for me. There is no going back. Movie theaters are dead. You think I'm exaggerating? Well, maybe. (laughs) I guess it's possible. That's what we do here. We speculate. We shoot our shots. We hope we're right. But I'm just like you. I'm putting all my money on red and I'm hoping the wheel doesn't land on double zero. I could very well be wrong. I could very well be engaging in hyperbole. But that's the take. As of this hour, 3 p.m. December 3rd, 2020, movie theaters are dead. But we'll get into the news more specifically and see exactly where we stand on everything. Um, This is the biggest story of 2020 in the world of pop culture thus far. And that's insane. At the 11th hour, 2020 continues to surprise us, to shock us, to mystify us. Um, this This is very big. Back in March, when the pandemic began, quote unquote, I guess it began earlier than that, but when our awareness for the pandemic began and the shutdowns began across the country, movie theaters and the movie business in general were scrambling to figure out what do we do with our major tentpole releases. Among these releases, of course, Universal's Fast and Furious 9, MGM's No Time to Die, the James Bond film, Warner Brothers' Tenant, Disney's Mulan, and, you know, Each studio, each theater chain came up with a different plan, but they were all relatively similar in philosophy, and that is to say, push it off until tomorrow. We'll figure it out down the line. That's tomorrow's me problem, you know? (laughs) I'll let the morning guy deal with it, as Jerry Seinfeld is fond of saying. They kicked the can. They kept pushing back these releases. First a few months, then... Uh, a few years and now we are stuck with a jam-packed 2021 schedule from almost every studio in the country and a very thin 2020 both oscar slate and box office slate tenant still came back at the end of august beginning of september many movie theaters showed it the two biggest uh film markets in the country los angeles and new york did not show it because movie theaters were not open in either of those markets. They still are not. And the box office returns for that film were incredibly underwhelming, considering that it is a major blockbuster release that cost upwards of $100 million to produce and was directed by one of the few bankable directors in the business, Christopher Nolan. Still did well overseas. Overseas audiences, both in Asia and Europe, went to the movie theaters as normal and saw the movie at a relatively similar rate to what we're used to with the Christopher Nolan summer release. But I don't believe there is anyone in the offices of Warner brothers in the greater Los Angeles area that believes that tenant was a box office success. It was a net loss for the studio, a net loss for Nolan and a net loss for movie theaters, particularly in this country. I think when studios got, their hands on this data when they saw how tenant was performing at the box office and saw that their films were on track for a similar fate, they panicked. And that's why, for example, Disney plus put Mulan out on, um, on their platform beginning in September. 
It's why Disney then announced that the Pixar film Soul would be debuting Christmas Day on Disney Plus, just like Mulan, except this time for no additional fee. It's why Universal struck a deal with Cinemark just two weeks ago, similar to the deal that they struck with AMC at the beginning of the summer to shorten the exclusivity window for their releases in theaters. Going forward, when a Universal movie is released in movie theaters, it's only going to be there for three weeks. Then after that, Universal is allowed to put it on demand on streaming services, whatever the hell they want to do with it. Theaters only get it for three weeks. And it's also why Warner Brothers decided to put Wonder Woman, the major tentpole release from the DC Cinematic Universe, on HBO Max for a 30-day window beginning on Christmas Day. When that news broke two weeks ago, many thought this is the crossing of the Rubicon. This is the shot heard around the world. This is over. There's no more putting the toothpaste back in the tube. There's no more unringing that bell, whatever metaphor you want to use. Rubicon's been crossed. Well, if Wonder Woman on HBO Max was the crossing of the Rubicon, today's announcement from Warner Brothers and HBO Max is crossing of the fucking Atlantic Ocean. There is certainly no coming back from this. Warner Brothers announces today a radically different distribution strategy, one that we have not seen in 125 years of the movie business. This is as radical a change as there's ever been to the physical movie space. Every single Warner Brothers title in the year 2021 will be released at home and in theaters the exact same day. Among these releases, Mortal Kombat, the upcoming Tom and Jerry remake, The Many Saints of Newark, the prequel to The Sopranos, Godzilla vs. Kong, major blockbuster, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, the upcoming Conjuring sequel, In the Heights, the Lin-Manuel Miranda musical, Space Jam, A New Legacy, the Space Jam sequel starring uh, LeBron James, The Suicide Squad, the sequel to the DC film, this one directed by James Gunn, Dune, the much-anticipated Denis Villeneuve um, reboot, remake, adaptation of a beloved science fiction novel, Elvis, a biopic about the king of rock and roll, The Matrix 4 starring Keanu Reeves, Sherlock Holmes 3, Crime Macho, the uh, the upcoming Clint Eastwood movie, Judas and the Black Messiah. Many thought that was going to be an Oscar contender in 2020. Now it's getting pushed to 2021. Uh, and it all begins Christmas Day, December 25th, with the release of Wonder Woman 1984 in theaters and at home for HBO Max subscribers at no additional cost. Wow. Wow, this is a major move. And by the way, it's not the type of move you make temporarily. Whatever Warner Brothers is saying in their press releases, does anyone actually believe this is a temporary move? Does anyone actually believe this is a one-and-done band-aid? Does anyone actually believe that this is not an industry-redefining gamble? They may be saying one thing. I have a very hard time believing that the cat can be put back in the bag. That the toothpaste can be put back in the tube. That the bell can be unrung. Whatever metaphor you want to use. It's over. At least for Warner Brothers. It's over. This is going to set a major uh, set of dominoes in motion. And we can talk about all of these different angles There are many calling this an overreaction, and perhaps it is. Certainly seems like there's a lot of money being left on the table here. Actually, we know there's a lot of money being left on the table here. Many of these films cost upwards of $200 million, some of them $300 million, and the studio expects them to make a billion worldwide. There's a lot of money being left on the table here, and Warner Brothers knows this because every studio knows this. It's hard to make money with an at-home release. It just is. At the beginning of the pandemic, Trolls World Tour did very well on demand. Universal was very happy with the returns. Not so much because the movie made as much money as it would in theaters, 
but because Universal's profit share, i.e. 90% of the profits as opposed to 50% of the profits in theaters, equaled a pretty substantial check for them. So they were very bullish to put out the King of Staten Island on demand. You notice how much bragging there was on the part of Universal when that movie came out? Do you notice how quiet the trades were about the box office success of the King of Staten Island starring Pete Davidson? Ah, You wonder why Universal hasn't put out another major release since then? Because it's hard to get people to spend $30 for an at-home release when they can just watch Tiger King on Netflix for free. I suspect Disney saw, uh, you know, a similar reaction to Mulan. Again, they've been very mum about the numbers. That's because they're Disney and that's because they're allowed to be very coy about this sort of thing. They can just claim that everything is a success similar to the way that Netflix does with each of their releases. And no one will think twice. And also, by the way, if Mulan is a box office failure, who cares? We're fucking Disney. We have all the Star Wars movies on the platform. You're paying us anyway. So one of my big takeaways here is this is a very expensive way to get people interested in HBO Max. Feels like an overpay. Feels like a Chris Davis level overpay. Apologies for the baseball reference. You are leaving billions of dollars on the table in the hopes that what? 40 million people, 50 million people sign up for HBO Max in the next year, which also feels like a lot, particularly at that price point, 15 bucks a month. What this does signify to me is that Warner Brothers is definitely not happy with (laughs) the response to HBO Max. When the thing launched in the summertime, People didn't know how to get it. People didn't know the difference between HBO, HBO Now, HBO Go, HBO Max. There's still a ton of confusion on the part of the consumer, especially if you have a Roku box. You don't have access to HBO Max yet because they haven't struck a deal with Roku. Maybe this deal will help gain leverage, but there are still people that don't understand what HBO Max is. They don't know how to get it, and they don't know what the difference is between that and their regular HBO subscription. It's not how you generate buzz on launch. Even though that library is tremendous. I love the HBO Max library. I am blown away by all of the Turner Classic movies on there, by all the DC stuff on there, all the Studio Ghibli stuff on there. But that was a bomb. That was a flop. And they can crunch the numbers however they'd like. In fact, the last time I saw HBO Max brag about their subscriber numbers, they bragged that I think it was, what, 8 million people had access to HBO Max but did not know it yet? And they were counting those numbers as part of the larger total? Come on. Come on. So what this signifies to me is that launch was a bomb. They've been embarrassed by Disney. Disney has been eating their lunch for the past year despite a much inferior catalog and a much smaller selection of original programming. Disney's been kicking their ass. Netflix continues to add subscribers. The Hulu acquisition on the part of Disney has been very successful because they continue to build subscribers. Amazon is doing whatever Amazon does. They don't even need Amazon Prime in order to survive. So this is a panic move. And it's a very expensive panic move. And I don't want to call it one way or the other at this point, but... I certainly understand the sentiment of those online saying, geez, Tenant didn't do well, and now you're just giving up on the entire premise of movie theaters? Oh, feels like a bit of an overreaction. Can we find a middle ground here? And I understand where these people are coming from. I also just fundamentally think that major corporations are not built to exist in this climate. And like, it's been a year since Warner Brothers has made any money on anything. And you just can't sustain that. Movie theaters cannot sustain that. Studios cannot sustain that. And uh, like, this is the way that it was going anyway. I've been saying this since the beginning of the pandemic. I love going to the movies. It's my favorite thing to do. In fact, I just saw a movie called Mank in a movie theater 
four days ago, knowing full well that tomorrow it's coming out on Netflix. And I don't have to pay anything to watch it on Netflix. I paid $8 to see it in a movie theater. Independent art house, mom and pop movie theater. And, uh, you know, I love it, but it's over. And it's just not a sustainable business, particularly in this sort of climate, and particularly after we've taught audiences to expect major releases on their television sets at no additional charge. So, yeah, a lot of money is being left on the table in pursuit of a larger vision. We'll see where that goes. We'll see if it's an overreaction. We'll see if other studios fall in line with this model. It's just too early to tell. What I would look out for over the next few days, what is the reaction going to be on the part of movie theater owners? Because as we saw in March and April, when Universal put out a Talking Trolls movie, that AMC crew is, uh, you know, a little sensitive. They sometimes need to be coddled. They sometimes need to be told that they're pretty. They sometimes need to be asked to the prom, even though you already know you're going with them. Like, if you don't formally ask them and you don't get down on one knee, they're going to bitch and complain about you. If you thought they overreacted to that news, oh boy. Like, this Warner Brothers news, it ain't just a pinky promise. This is an uprooting of an entire industry. This is a fundamental shift in how business is conducted. I would be uh, very irate if I were AMC and I just negotiated my deal with Universal for the 30-day exclusivity window. Warner Brothers not even coming to the table and negotiating a similar deal is very troubling. And I think that's what more likely than not is going to be the reaction on the part of Cinemark, on the uh, on the part of amc like they are going to be very very mad and i would think if i'm the head of amc that they're not going to show any of the warner brothers films now they're probably not losing out on that much business anyway because maybe myself and adam hall as lunatics will go to the theater to see dune we'll go to the theater to see the new space jam we'll go to the theater to see godzilla versus kong But let's be honest, the vast majority of people that you know, and in fact, the vast majority of people listening to this podcast are not going to pay the extra money to see a movie they can see for free at home. So I just don't know why Warner Brothers feels the need to keep these movies in theaters at all. I'm not sure what purpose that serves. I'm not sure what percentage of the potential audience will pay the money to see it in a theater and not watch it at home. I don't know if the size of that audience justifies the effort. And I just don't see the utility of this beyond keeping theater owners happy, which I just don't think they're going to be that happy no matter what you do. It feels like a symbolic gesture. It feels like a way of saying, ah, you're fine. You're pretty. Come on. You know, I love you. You know, I would never cheat on you with Roku or Amazon Fire Stick, like you're still my homegirl. That being said, I have a business trip this weekend and my phone may be off for a couple hours at a time. Just don't worry about it. Like that's what this is. Like, no, we're still in business. Yeah, we're still going out. We're still dating. It's all good. You're still going to get the movies as you normally do. But yeah, like I'm also putting it online at no additional cost and you're fucked. I just don't think AMC, I don't think Cinemark is going to take this one laying down and expect them to hit back very, very hard, very, very soon. Also, like, what's up with the 30-day window? Why only 30 days? Because here's the thing. You're going to get Wonder Woman 1984. You're going to get the new Tom and Jerry movie. You're going to get the new Conjuring movie. You're going to watch it for free. And then they're going to take it off the platform and make it available on demand and at Redbox and for rental on iTunes at the normal price. Like, is that what's happening here? Because what we have understood over the past, whatever, 30 to 40 years of at home film viewing is that a movie comes out in the theater and that is the most expensive the movie will ever be. And then that movie slowly passes through several windows of distribution and becomes less expensive over time, right? 
begins at the movie theater, 15 bucks for a movie ticket. Then you can buy it at Walmart or Target. Then you can buy it on iTunes. Then you can rent it on iTunes. Then you can rent it on demand. Then you can watch it on the premium television networks like HBO and Cinemax. Then you can watch it on some of the streaming services. Finally, it ends up on FX on a random Saturday afternoon. You can record it and watch it for free. And then the Walmart bargain bin. A dollar, please take this thing off our hands. Like that is, I just think, the natural pecking order. That is the natural evolution of a film. It begins at a premium rate and eventually ends up at Walmart for a dollar. And at no point does the price increase. At no point does the convenience decrease. This feels like a complete upend of that model. It's free or relatively free, considering you have to still pay for HBO Max. But it's at no additional cost on day one. It's at no additional cost all the way up to day 30. And then we're going to pay $20 to get it on iTunes? I don't buy it. And I'm not sure how you're going to teach an audience that business model. I'm not sure if a family is going to be willing to pay 15 bucks for Wonder Woman on a Friday night after they just got it for free three months earlier. So there are some obvious questions here. Now, the numbers may not make sense to me, but someone that's more informed and more intelligent than I am with a corner office has crunched these numbers and it makes sense to them. So that's good enough for me, man. Like... If it makes sense to you in your corner office, it makes sense to me in my small computer office. Um, But like all that being said, uh, you got to iron out some issues here. You're going to have to work through this and they will. They'll survive. They'll be okay. This is a press release with scarce details about the actual distribution model, about the actual financials. I'm sure that you know, the release of Wonder Woman is not going to look the same as the release of Dune. Something is going to change in the meantime because Warner Brothers is going to learn something about the market. Um, but, you know, there are questions and there will remain questions for a while. We're in uncharted territory here. Um, here's the other thing. Actors are going to have to adjust to this. Directors are going to have to adjust to this. Screenwriters are going to have to adjust to this. This is a top-down issue. Because now that box office returns are not going to be coming in for these Warner Brothers movies, box office bonuses are not going to be paid out to these actors. And that's a major deal because it's been a popular way of structuring contracts over the past few years. Turn down the money up front, take a piece of the box office action on the back end. That's what Robert Downey Jr. did with the Avengers franchise, and now he's one of the highest paid actors in the world. It's been a very popular way of structuring contracts, not just for actors, but other crew members behind the scenes. Well, now that revenue is zero, and who knows if there are any contingencies in these contracts to account for a global pandemic, to account for Warner Brothers taking movies out of the theaters entirely and putting them on streaming services? Who knows? Who knows? If they kept these movies in theaters just to get out of paying the actors their fair share of the profits, perhaps this is a strategic move, a loophole within the deal. Well, that would be kind of douchey if I do say so myself, but there's a lot of questions now, top to bottom. How are you going to get paid if you're a major Hollywood star or even just like a struggling screenwriter or director? The, the, the very popular sentiment over the past few years in this business is bet on yourself. Do good work, collect on the back end, and get paid in perpetuity. As the distribution model changes, so does the financial model. And the accountants over at Warner Brothers are going to be very busy for the next couple days fielding calls from some agents across that town. Because there's a lot of actors that are very unhappy about this. So look, is this an overreaction? Probably not. Probably not. It's still an expensive way of driving subscribers to HBO Max. 
And it proves that HBO Max is not the golden goose that Warner Brothers thought it was going to be. It also doesn't feel like the smartest and most efficient way to grow a platform. Because if Netflix taught us anything, splashy releases don't get subscribers. Subscribers dictate splashy releases. In other words, HBO paid, or I'm sorry, Netflix paid $200 million for The Irishman. And The Irishman did okay on Thanksgiving weekend. And I'm sure some people subscribed to Netflix because The Irishman was on the platform. Not $200 million worth of people, but someone subscribed. And it did all right at the Oscars. But it's very telling, very telling, that when Martin Scorsese had another $200 million movie lined up, Netflix passed on the project. Because Netflix is no longer at a point in its existence where it has to rely on any particular release. Look what succeeded on Netflix over the past couple of years. Stranger Things, The Crown, The Queen's Gambit, number one show on Netflix over the past month and number one limited series in the history of the platform. Wasn't House of Cards wasn't Mindhunter, both David Fincher projects with major movie stars. Oh, no. The Queen's Gambit, starring Anya Taylor-Joy, relatively famous young actress, and directed by Scott Frank, veteran Hollywood screenwriter and director. By no means a splashy release. I'm sure they made Queen's Gambit for under $20 million. But there is enough of a trust level with its massive subscriber base that Netflix can just put shit on the platform. They can moneyball it at this point. There are enough people logging on to the Netflix homepage because they trust that whatever on Netflix is worth their time. And the hits will come later. The hits will reveal themselves. Netflix can just pump out as much random shit as they'd like, hope that the algorithm takes over, and the right shows and the right movies find the right audience. They don't need to spend $200 million on a Martin Scorsese project. They don't need to spend $200 million on Dune. They don't need to spend $200 million on Tom and Jerry. Because you'll find Tiger King. You'll find the Queen's Gambit. You'll find the crown. HBO is running this entire process in reverse. They are starting under the assumption that Wonder Woman is going to be a hit. They are starting under the assumption that Space Jam 2 and the Suicide Squad are going to be hits. Fair enough. But that's not how you gain trust with an audience. That's not how you make your platform, you make your label bigger than the show or movie itself. That's the problem that Warner Brothers is going to have to get over. Because they built that brand with HBO. They built that customer loyalty with HBO. They put enough high-quality shows on the platform over the past 20 years where people will just check out an HBO show on a Sunday night because it's from HBO. It must be at least watchable. HBO Max doesn't have that reputation yet. And you can't just keep riding the coattails of HBO in hopes that eventually it will catch on. So I'll say this again. I have questions about this move. It's a massive gamble. I have no idea if it's going to pay off. But it was a necessary move. It was a necessary action. It was a necessary evolution in the distribution of cinema. It pains me. It pains me. Are movie theaters dead? Probably. At least on the scale that we now understand them. AMC, I don't think, survives this. Cinemark, I don't think, survives this. Regal, I don't think, survives this. I've been saying that for months now. This is only further proof of my theory. Are movies dead? No. And I think that's the silver lining in all of this. I, I, I actually saw a great tweet today, and I'll... Uh, let me actually read it for you right now. My friend Jabril sent this to me. Um, this, this is a tweet from Nick Pinkerton on Twitter. 
So sad that a 125-year-old art form is now deceased because dead tech bullshit 16-screen barns that exclusively play worthless $200 million tent poles are in trouble. <laughs> Which is a bit sassy, and uh, look, I don't think I agree with every word of that, but I mean, he has a point, right? Like, every movie that I read for you that Warner Brothers is putting out on, on HBO Max is a major tent pole with a lot of CGI and not what most movie fans think of as cinema. Certainly not what Martin Scorsese thinks of as cinema. So, you know, movie theaters have always been just a building to showcase those types of movies, at least over the past 20 to 30 years. So the idea of the media movie is dead, and it's been dead, and the financial model is going to have to uh, evolve yet again. And if anything, this is going to open up more opportunities for those 10 to 20 and million, $20 million movies. It's going to provide more outlets for independent cinema because now you don't have to fill the biggest screen. You don't have to utilize the most complex surround sound system. You can make a movie for the small screen, a more intimate film that may speak to a smaller group of people, but speak much louder than the most CGI heavy blockbuster. So are movies dead? Absolutely not. There will be good years. There will be bad years. This has been a bad year. Next year might be a good one. There will be movies that speak to you. There will be movies that speak to a much larger audience. And there will be movies that speak to someone in between. But they're going to keep making them. Because audiences keep wanting them. And as long as you make it clear that you want them, people with a lot of money... We'll keep paying. So I'm going to keep watching movies. I'm going to watch them at home. I'm going to watch them with my friends. I'm going to watch them by myself. And every once in a while, I'm going to drive as far as I have to drive to the nearest movie theater to see one on the big screen. Because that's how I do. But for now, I'm pouring one out to my favorite building in the world, my local movie theater. Uh, and I hope that one day we meet again. This is Cultured. Coming right back. Okay. Uh, Grammy nominations. Yeah, those are a thing. God, I am just not in the mood for award season. And that's unlike me because every year I'm always in the mood for award season. And this year it just seems so empty and in vain. It really, there's no need to do this. There's no need to award anything <laughs> like the Oscars this year are going to be particularly bleak. Um, and just like Jimmy Kimmel sitting in his living room, handing out an Oscar to a dead guy is, uh, I don't know. I don't know, man. It's just not going to be the same. And part of me does think like, let's just push this off till next year. Let's just call it off. But at the same time, I'm an Oscar nerd and we can't call off the Oscars. Like, we can't just pick no winner in the year 2020. That just doesn't feel right. It's something we're going to have to go back and think about for decades, decades to come. And when my kids are scrolling through their, the Wikipedia page of Best Picture winners and there's a blank space next to 2020, I don't want to have to explain to them that movies stopped existing for the entire year. But uh, that may be the reality of things. Anyway, Grammy nominations have been released. The weekend is not happy about it. <laughs> I guess that's the big takeaway. The weekend and his album after hours has been completely shut out at the Grammys, a whopping zero nominations for the weekend. Despite that album being one of the most commercially successful of the year, many thought it would be a contender in most of the general categories. It was nominated in none of them. The weekend tweeted out that, uh, that he's very mad at the Academy for the snubs. And okay. Uh, I don't know. I don't think that album is that good. <sighs> Sorry. Hot take. Hot take. Um, I don't know. I think that is just kind of an annoying record. And I think Blinding Lights is perhaps the most overrated song of my lifetime. And <laughs> like... I don't know. I just thought like that album lacked teeth in the way that some of his other albums haven't. But I don't know. I found those songs to be fairly mind numbing 
and I have not revisited it that much this year. Sorry. I mean, I don't know. Maybe give him a nomination over Dojo Cat. Doja Cat. What's his name? <laughs> Maybe like you can put Blinding Lights in that category over Dua Lipa, but uh, whatever. I'm not, I'm not complaining about it. Also, here's the thing. You should understand this at the front. Like every year I read the Grammy nominations and every year the list gets longer and every year the names that I know get shorter. I feel myself aging in real time and that's very unusual for someone at the age of 25. Like normally your body doesn't break down that much at this age and you know, knock on wood, but I'm in pretty good health and like I still got this rocking beach bod from all the whaling on the pecs, you know? But, you know, so my body is not reminding me that I'm getting older, but my knowledge of mainstream pop acts is really hammering the point home. And I'm uncomfortable about it. I'm very uncomfortable because most of these records I have not listened to. Most of these singles I have not heard because when I listen to the radio, it's certainly not top 40 radio. But I'm going to read them all and I'll uh, I'll give you my thoughts. Here we go. Record of the year. Your nominees are Black Parade by Beyonce. Haven't heard the song, but Beyonce's cool. Colors by Black Pumas. No idea who that is. Is it a group? Is it a man? Is it a woman? No clue. All I know about them is their shoe choices. That's it. Uh, This podcast is called Cultured by Black Adidas because those are the sneakers I'm wearing right now. <laughs> Rockstar by Da Baby featuring Roddy Rich. I know who they are. I know who Da Baby is. Da Baby's like, uh, didn't he win Best New Artist last year? I know Da Baby. Never heard this song. Uh, Say So by Doja Cat. <laughs> Everything I Wanted by Billie Eilish. I know her. Don't Start Now by Dua Lipa. Circles by Post Malone. I like that song. And Savage by Megan Thee Stallion featuring Beyonce. This is the worst podcast segment of all time. This is awful. (laughs) You know, sometimes when you're getting ready to record a podcast, like you do hours and hours of prep. And by the way, I'm recording a podcast about Mank later today. It's going to be on the website by tomorrow. Adam Hall and I talking about Mank. And for the past three days, I've just been reading Pauline Kale pieces and researching the history of Citizen Kane. And that is going to be eight hours worth of prep squeezed into an hour of podcast time. This right here is zero hours of prep squeezed into 15 minutes worth of podcast time. (laughs) You know, it's like I'm just realizing now I haven't listened to any of these songs and maybe it would have been helpful if I actually listened to them and then I could give you my thoughts on which are the best. But instead, I'm coming on here and off the cuff, just reading these names and going, who? So I'm going to stop doing that. How about that? I'm going to stop doing that. Coldplay is nominated in the album of the year category. Uh, A return for Coldplay. That, okay. So like if I were putting money in Vegas on which mainstream pop act will never receive a Grammy nomination again, Coldplay would have been pretty high on that list. Like, I would have just assumed that the moment for Coldplay is over. I think we all assumed that, right? Didn't we all move on? Like, Viva La Vida was the last straw, right? Like, at least on a critical level. Like, maybe you would still listen to Coldplay, and radio stations would still play new Coldplay songs. But, like... If you gave me the over-under on Grammy nominations that Coldplay would receive between now and the year 2100, I think I would have taken the under every time. But, uh, okay, Everyday Life by Coldplay gets a spot here. I'll have to listen to that album. There was a moment in time, believe it or not, where Coldplay was my favorite band. And that was a very long time ago, and I was a very silly child. And uh, I probably should have received a few lashes every now and again. But the lack of corporal punishment in my household contributed to my love of the band Coldplay. And for that, I am ashamed. 
But now I'm an adult, and I like adult things. And I know that Santa Claus isn't real. And I know the Easter Bunny is not going to come in my room and hide his eggs all over the place. And I know who the Tooth Fairy is. And I know that Coldplay is a fucking travesty. But maybe that new album's good. I don't know. Um, The only important thing really here is that Folklore by Taylor Swift is nominated in the Album of the Year category and most certainly will win, right? Like, I don't see anything else here that has any chance, considering that we know that the Grammys hate hip-hop, like, right? I'm not going to go as far to say that the Grammys are racist, but I'm going to go so far to imply that the Grammys are racist. You know, like (laughs) every year, at least for the past five or six, there's been seven hip hop albums and one middle of the road pop album. And it just so happens that every single year, the Grammys vote for the middle of the road pop album. You know, I mean, just we're accounting for taste, right? It's a normal thing to happen. It's just it's just a very small chance it's like a one in three million chance that every year the middle of the road pop album will win uh and yeah what are you gonna do sorry post malone sorry black pumas whoever the hell you are it's time for taylor number three (laughs) grammy number three for taylor swift Woo! i mean in fairness that is the album of the year right we'll talk about it later i guess uh, song of the year looks pretty similar. Black Parade by Beyonce. The Box by Roddy Rich. Cardigan by Taylor Swift. Circles by Post Malone. Don't Start Now by Dua Lipa. Everything I Wanted by Billie Eilish. I Can't Breathe by Her. And If the World Was Ending, J.P. Sachs featuring Julia Michaels. Best New Artist, Ingrid Andrus, Phoebe Bridgers, Chica, Noah Cyrus, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing these. D Smoke, Doja Cat, Kate Tranada, and Megan Thee Stallion. And uh, Phoebe Bridgers would be my vote in this category because she's one of two artists that I know on this list and I like her work. More on that in the next few weeks when we're doing end of year stuff. Oh, another thing that was of note, of course, is the best rock performance category. This is something that every pop culture site was quick to point out. Every nominee in the best rock performance category is a woman. And this comes after some controversy a few years ago when the Grammys were called out for the representation of women. Uh, The head of the Music Academy had to actually step down as a result of his comments about women performers, I believe the actual quote was women do better, make better music, and then you'll get more nominations. A lot of controversy surrounding that comment. And now all these years later, every single nominee in the rock performance category, a woman, those artists, big thief, Fiona, Apple, Phoebe Bridgers, Haim, Brittany Howard, Grace Porter, all of them nominated in that category. Uh, yeah, rock and roll's dead, except uh, for the women, I guess. Rock is just like a women's category now, which is cool. It's great. I love a lot of these artists. I think Shamika is an unbelievable song. And uh, that Fiona Apple record, we're, we're going to have a lot of conversations about that when the year comes to a close. Speaking of which, why was that nominate, not nominated in the best album category? Explain that one to me. I thought that was clearly and obviously the best album or at least one of the two or three best albums of the year, right? Uh, cool. Let's let's uh, shoot this segment in the back of the head and pretend that it never existed. Okay? That's... <laughs> I won't tell anyone if you don't. But just forget this ever happened, all right? Great. What happens on Cultured stays on Cultured. what a dud let's take a break when we come back more from the world of popular culture stick around all right uh i want to end today's podcast with a bit of a public service announcement because every once in a while we're in need of a reality check and this is something i happen to know a little bit about the year is coming to a close mercifully 2020 is ending 
Which means for the next few weeks, if you're a fan of popular culture, copious amounts of best of lists are going to begin filling your social media feeds and blogs of choice. Best movies of the year, worst movies of the year, television shows, stars, influencers, music videos, everything's about to be ranked. And ranking's always fun. It's fun for the content creators as much as it is for the content consumers. (laughs) Because for some reason, there is a primal urge on the part of pop culture fanatics to rank things, to quantify things, to put things in order, and to declare something the best or worst of a particular year. And frankly, it's also a really easy way to get clicks because it's an easy post to write. doesn't take much effort. It's a nice, simple format that is tried and true, and people continue to read them, and people continue to debate them. And I will be making several best of lists at the end of the year, as I am fond of doing every single year. Sometimes I do it by myself. Sometimes I share it with the world. This year, I'll be sharing it with the world, or at least that's the plan. Three lists. Best movies of 2020. Best television shows of 2020 and best albums of 2020. Who knows how long they'll be? Who knows how in-depth I'll get in the written portion? Sometimes I have some fun with these lists. Sometimes I go a little avant-garde on your ass. We'll see how they end up. I'm still writing these, these, uh, these pieces. But here's a lesson for you. And I want you to know this. Before you open one of those links, before you look at BuzzFeed's top 10 bikini models of Instagram before you look at Rolling Stone's definitive best singles of 2020 by a woman between the ages of 35 and 42 before you open one of those links just understand list making is a ridiculous practice but it's fun it's fun to write and it's fun to read and more often than not in fact 100% of the time, a list does not exist as a definitive statement on the state of popular culture. A list exists to reflect the values and sentiments of the person creating it. And this is a very important distinction. Because it's very common for a blogger or a letterboxed user to label their list the definitive top 10. In fact, the Oscars do it every single year with their best picture categories. These are the 10 best movies, and that's that. But that's not what these list creators are doing. What these list creators are doing are choosing movies that reflect something about their own personality. I've talked about this many times in the past. Pop culture is performative. Fandom is performative. Wearing a Star Trek t-shirt is performative. Wearing a sports franchise hat is performative. To express fandom or appreciation for something is to say something about yourself and what you value. When ranking the 10 best movies of the year, you might list all Marvel and DC movies because you want to prove that you're a mainstream guy. You're not a film snob. You're just a guy that likes movies. And I like the same movies that you like. See? I cried at Avengers just like you did. Perhaps you're ranking only foreign films, only films screened in art house theaters that no one has ever heard of because you want to prove that you dig to the very bottom of the content bin in order to find the most obscure releases. You may want to prove that I see more movies than you do. Or maybe, and this is most of the time the case, you want to prove that you're fucking smarter than everybody reading the piece. Which, let's be honest, is what the New York Times did this week when they published their top 25 actors of the 21st century. Um, Look, I know it's incredibly boring when I just read a list and give comments on everybody on the list, but I want to make a larger point here. Uh, the New York Times has a brand. They are the old gray lady. They are the paper of record. They are the central hub of journalism and critical thought. And uh, 
look, as someone that reads the New York Times every day and values that brand of journalism and values the think pieces and, and critical essays that they publish on a daily basis, I have also spent a lot of time in their editorial section. And it can get a little fucking annoying. It can get a little panderous. It can get a little holier than thou. And this list is no different. It's a ridiculous fucking list. And we all understand that it's a ridiculous fucking list. (laughs) Denzel Washington was number one on the list. Fine. That makes sense to me. Uh, Then you got Isabella Hubert at number two. Or Isabel Hubert, sorry, at number two, who most of you probably haven't heard of. Um, a wonderful actress, but I, I won't linger on that all too much. Daniel Day-Lewis at number three. Keanu Reeves at number four. And Nicole Kidman at number five. <laughs> wow. Okay. Lot to unpack here. First of all, I don't know what the hell Nicole Kidman is doing. Anywhere close to the top ten. Never mind number five, but whatever. There, there's no real consistency here. Um. I was trying to sort of figure out what the times was trying to articulate about movie stardom by putting together this list of 25 actors and uh, you know, putting Denzel at number one sort of signifies that the, the choices that they make on a financial level and the movies that they, they sign on to do have very little to do with an actor's ability to carry that project. So in other words, Denzel Washington has done Fences, Denzel Washington has done Training Day, Denzel Washington has done several films that put him in Oscar contention, Flight with Robert Zemeckis, whatever, all pretty good movies. He's also done The Equalizer. He's also done Unstoppable. He's also done Man on Fire. He's also done Two Guns. Two Guns? No, he's not in Two Guns. Is he in Two Guns? Yeah, right? Two Guns. He's done a lot of shit. Is my point, if you catch my meaning. And the the Times actually talked about this in the little blurb about Denzel, that the greatest side of an actor is an ability to carry a film without the movie being good and to, you know, find something compelling in material that is not in and of itself compelling. So Denzel is number one. He's probably the most charismatic actor of his generation, has just done an incredibly high volume of work across many genres, has been recognized by critics, has been recognized by audiences, makes total sense. He transcends the films that he's in. Isabel Hubert, kind of the opposite. Like, she's done a lot of work uh, in Europe. Um, I, I think the most mainstream success she gained stateside was for a movie called Elle from 2016. I think she won the Golden Globe for that movie. It's a Paul Verhoeven flick. Um, German movie uh, like that is just not in line with what the Denzel Washington pick signifies. Same with Daniel Day Lewis. Number three on the list. Daniel Day Lewis, probably the best actor. One of the five best actors of all time is very selective with his roles. Does not generally pick bad material, although he is great in Phantom Thread. That's a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Same with There Will Be Blood. Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Um, you know, he was in a bad movie called nine in, I believe it was 2008, 2009. And uh, he was bad in that movie. So like, if we're talking about an actor's ability to transcend the material, I don't know if we have enough evidence to suggest that Daniel Day Lewis would be good in a buddy cop movie. Same with Keanu Reeves at number four. Keanu Reeves is a bad actor or at least was a bad actor. And he's turned it around over the last few years because he has made smart decisions and appeared in movies with good directors behind the camera. The John Wick movies are an incredible, um, uh, an incredible artifact in, um, in proving that it's not too late for an actor to reinvent their image. And Keanu Reeves essentially became a stuntman. For the past couple of years. Like he's good in the John Wick movies because he's good at the stunts and he's okay in the very few lines of dialogue he has to deliver. But like Keanu Reeves, we all know is not one of the five best actors of this decade. And that to me is proof that the times kind of does value an actor's choices 
it kind of does value the body of work. Like it does value an actor's ability to see their own strengths and weaknesses and pick movies based on them alone. And then Nicole Kidman just makes no fucking sense to me. But you keep going down this list and you see more inconsistency. Song Kang Ho, who I love. Most audiences became familiar with his work in Parasite, but has worked with Bong Joon-ho in several movies, including um, uh, Memories of Murder, including The Host, a bunch of great Korean movies. We just did Class of Bong Bong Joon-ho on Movie Hall of Fame a few months ago. Great actor. That's a guy where the choices are, are sort of better than the actual performances, although he's a great actor. Tony Servillo, I, I just don't know who that is. Same with Zhao Tao. Zhao Tao, is that her name? His name at number eight. And Viola Davis is at number nine. Great. Sir Sharonin's at number 10. I just don't think the body of work is that big with her. Julianne Moore makes sense at 11, as does Joaquin Phoenix at 12, Tilda Swinton at 13, Oscar Isaac at 14, Michael B. Jordan at 15. But then we get back to Kim Min Hee, Wes Studi, Rob Morgan. (laughs) Here's my point, guys. This is not a definitive list. This is a list meant to inflame. This is a list meant to draw controversy. This is a list meant to drive conversation. And although there are a lot of actors I really respect on this list, like Gael Garcia Bernal from a, an Ital- uh, from a, um, a, a Spanish language movie called Itumama Tambien, directed by Alfonso Coron. Love that movie, and I love Gael Garcia Bernal in that movie. But like, he didn't have a better decade than Philip Seymour Hoffman. He didn't have a better decade than Tom Hardy. He didn't have a better decade than Meryl Streep, Ethan Hawke, Sam Rockwell, even Christian Bale. Where's Leo on this list? Leo had an incredible decade. Like, I think if you were to poll 100 people who did the best work as an actor in the 21st century, Leo is the guy number one on the family feud board. But the New York Times knows this. So the New York Times assembled a list of names that you might no and names that you might not and threw in Keanu Reeves and Melissa McCarthy in there because they wanted to prove that they could get down with what the kids are getting down with and ultimately they want to prove that they're smarter than you and perhaps they may be smarter than you they're certainly smarter than me this would not have been my list my list may have have had Kate Blanchett on it Scarlett Johansson may, might have been on that list Emma Stone might have been on that list I think she's a more compelling comedic actress the Melissa McCarthy, like if we're going to throw the token comedy actor on there, Emma Stone would be my choice for this century. Ryan Gosling, no consideration. Jake Gyllenhaal, no consideration. If we're in the realm of blockbusters, where's Downey? But whatever. Let this serve as a reminder to you. List making is a joke. And the responses can sometimes get a little fiery, but it's all in the spirit of good fun. And when you look at that list, including mine at the end of the year, don't consider them the 10 definitive technical cinematic achievements of the year. Don't think of it as the Pulitzer Prize or the Cy Young Award or even the Oscars. Think of it as a personal reflection of taste. Because that's what art is, after all. It's personal. All right. That's going to do it. A lot of news this week. Um, I I had to just completely revamp the show because of of that Warner Brothers news this afternoon. Um, And I'm sure there will be more next week. And we'll continue to follow this as the story unfolds. Um, But thank you. Thank you for being here. And uh, we'll be back next week to talk about whatever news comes across the, the ticker. I love you. Go to the website, tmt.media or too many thoughtsmedia.com. This week, why is this a thing? We have two episodes dropping about the Princess Switch franchise. The Netflix cinematic universe uh, of Christmas films is expanding uh, very quickly. And uh, we, we decided to take a whopping three hours out of our week to discuss two of these Vanessa Hudgens rom coms. 
<laughs> so check those out on the website, too many thoughts, media.com or tmt.media for short. Mank review will be posted tomorrow. This Friday, Adam is coming over, I believe in an hour to record that. And, um, I think that's it. Two cents radio, of course, a show that you should be listening to and the discord. You can join the discord by clicking on the link, the link in the description for this podcast. You guys are the best. You're my favorites. I love you. I'll always love you. And I do hope that you come back next week because you know what happens then. Well, you and I, we get culture. I'll see you.